Well, we've been through a lot. I mean, we, the human race. Good times throughout history, full of integrity and plenty, as well as a lot of suffering and tragedy. It's been quite a story, but how does it end? I mean, the story as a whole will probably keep going, but this particular plotline, this balancing act between harmony and antagonism, which path do we end up taking? Do we all have a few bad years and end up destroying ourselves along with most other species? Or do we perpetually fluctuate, sometimes good, sometimes bad, leaving us in a zone where there's a lot of people that are happy and a lot that are miserable on any given day? Or do we go up? And if, is there a better, brighter future? And if so, what would cause it? What could push us to escape this gravity of sorts that kept us from all being on the same page? Last week we looked at a statue that had appeared in a very famous dream, and a statue that Swedenborg says, with its four different parts, symbolizes the four previous phases of human spiritual history. But don't forget how that dream ends. And could that push upwards have anything to do with the way that dream ends, with a rock that comes down, smashes the old, and then fills the whole earth? We're going to take a look at it all tonight. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Monday night, another episode of Swedenborg and Life, or it may be, what, like Tuesday morning, depending on where you are. Thanks so much for joining us. I know somebody's joining us from the UK, where it's one in the morning, and we really appreciate that, so thank you. Uh, My name is Curtis Childs. I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, and I host this show. And this show, if you're new to this, if this is your first time watching this show, I'm going to try to explain what happens. We talk about strange things uh, (laughs) in sequence. What we do is look at the recorded spiritual experiences of Emanuel Swedenborg, which is, that's just a quick Google if you want to find that out, and we look at what's in them, where do they touch with the world we know, what's the nature of the whole thing, and what can we get out of it. So there, is that good? And if you want to be part of the conversation, you can be. You just got to enter in your questions, your comments, and we'll get to them at the end of the show. We have a discussion, live discussion, question, answer-ish sort of thing. So that's how the show works. Today we're looking at the spiritual future of the human race, kind of a follow-up to our last week uh, episode where we looked at the spiritual history of the human race. So if we're going to start looking at this, first let's take a look at what people are saying is going to happen in the future. So to get anywhere in this direction with Swedenborg, you've got to know what the phrase, the new church, means. You'll come across it not everywhere in Swedenborg, but in some pretty good segments, he's talking about a new church. And his description of the new church is where we get this whole thing. So in brief, church has a special meaning when you're dealing with Swedenborg. It doesn't just mean an organization or a structure or group as we commonly associate the word with today. The church, while it can encompass those things, is actually a mindset, like it's an internal state that we can cultivate. The church can be in a person. So that's what he means when he says it. So the new church is this phrase that he used to describe this coming new mindset that would change how people are inside, that will lead to mass Massive changes on the outside in the world. However, it starts with inside. And if we're going to start talking about this subject, you're going to have to prepare yourself for 
a little bit of disappointment because we're saying, oh, Swedenborg describes this new future, a spiritual future of the human race, but he doesn't really describe what's going to happen as far as the actual manifestation. He doesn't say, oh, in the year 2104, there's going to be a country that gets bigger, and he doesn't give those kinds of specifics. He actually does didn't know, despite all of his spiritual experiences, he even says that angels didn't even know that, and he, I'll tell you what I'm talking about right here. Last Judgment 74, our first uh, quote for the night. And just so you guys know, whenever you see a quote up here like this, you go into the description of this video, you can go download these books or find links to free PDFs, all for free on the web, so you can read more if you want. This is from his little book, The Last Judgment, number 74. I have had a number of talks with angels about the future state of the church. Excuse me, sorry. They said that they do not know what is to come because knowing what is to come belongs to the Lord alone. So even angels say, oh, we don't know. We don't really know, man. They do, however, know that the slavery and captivity that church people have suffered until now has been taken away. And if you enter this discussion in context, he's talking about internal captivity. This is not like there's some church group that's being oppressed by an empire. This is talking about in our minds, this sort of being held down by negative thoughts and feelings, misunderstandings that's holding the, the mind of the people in the church, which is this mindset of good and truth, it's holding them captive. So anyway, that's going to be taken away, and that now, because freedom has been restored, internal freedom, again, they can have a better sense of deeper truths if they choose to, and in this way can become people of greater depth if they choose to. So, we don't know how it's actually going to manifest, but there's something that's happened in the Spirit. And remember, this is back when Swedenborg was writing, mid-1700s. At that point, something changed in people's spirits, in their minds, which you could probably see reflected in a few places in history, which we may look at at the end. Um, so, once that started, even the angels don't know how it's going to happen, but they know there's potential. We can think and grasp things that open in ways that we couldn't before. However, uh, there are plenty of other people that predicted future states of happiness, you know, over the horizon, and some of them get much more specific. So I thought, if we're going to have this discussion, why don't we look at what they had to say? So, thing number one, if you go to neardeath.com, which there are two primary near-death experience websites I've found, the iands.org and neardeath.com. Uh, neardeath.com has this uh, a page that you see the link there, uh, or the URL, which just has discussion of a coming golden age. Then below it, this is, this is listed there, and also you can see it in his book, My Descent Into Death. Howard Storm was one of the first people to write down a near-death experience, uh, and he had a very specific vision of the future. We have a couple bullet points of it. He said, in the future, everyone's going to be a student of nature, animals are living in harmony, Uh, we can grow food instantly, raising children is a major focus, there's lots of small communities, people can communicate with their minds, we don't need technology, and people can control the weather with their thoughts. This is what he says he saw in his vision. Then also, if you go to hinduism.about.com, in, oh, here comes pronunciation time. In the Brahma Vavavarta Purana, Lord Krishna tells Ganga Devi that a golden age will come in the Kali Yuga, one of the four stages of development that the world goes through as part of the cycle of eras as described in Hindu scriptures. And then further on, there's some other holy sacred texts that this idea is in as well. Something coming up that's going to be better 
than what we've had in the past. Upon the second advent of the Lord, this is from the Unification Church, Divine Principle, upon the second advent of the Lord as the true parent of mankind, all men will come to live harmoniously in the garden as one family. From Islam in the Quran, on the day on the day when we shall roll up heaven as a scroll is rolled up for the writings, as we originated the first creation, so we shall bring it back again. A promise binding on us, so we shall do. For we have written in the Psalms and the remembrance, the earth shall be the inheritance of my righteous servants. In Sikhism, now is the gracious Lord's ordinance promulgated. No one shall cause another pain or injury. All mankind shall live in peace together under a shield of administrative benevolence, or so it's translated now. So, the idea is something good is coming, something that's better than what we had, sort of a a fulfillment of a kind of a divine promise. This is on the horizon. And Swedenborg says this as well, but we're going to take a deep look at, I almost said a deep in-depth look at what he says about it. And first of all, if we're going to get into it, we have to get into the mindset. Okay, so the city of the mind. If you've watched this show at all, you know that there's a lot of symbolism that goes on. Within Swedenborg's body of work, the idea that physical objects can represent um, spiritual or internal realities is everywhere. And in this case, we're looking at the city as a symbol. So to set it up, here's something from Swedenborg's Secrets of Heaven, 2268. He says, the word compares truth in the human mind to a city and also refers to it as such. And when Swedenborg says the word, he's talking about the Bible as we know it. However, if this is your first time here, you've got to understand that he describes the Bible operation operationally in a very different way than most people interact with it. He says that there is this whole symbolism. It's written almost in the language that you dream in, and every part of it has a correspondence or analog uh, to something that it, it, it signifies. And we're going to look at a tangible example of that here. But just to set it up, you know, there's a city. A city is a symbol of the mind. And the future of the mind is predicted by the description of one of the more famous spiritual cities. And to look at that, you have to search the book of Revelation for the holy city, New Jerusalem. Probably everyone is, or most people are familiar with this. This is described just about at the end of the book, and there's a lot of details given about the city. And Swedenborg says that all those details have spiritual significance. This city is actually a description of the mindset that's going to make this new church happen. So I thought we could take a look at the details of the city and what they mean and what they predict. So first of all, we'll just go through step by step. The city is surrounded by a wall. In the book of Revelation, it says, a wall made out of jasper. And Swedenborg has the following commentary on that wall and why it's there and what it means. So first for background, he says, the holy Jerusalem means the church that is going to take the place of the one that is ours at the present day. Its light is the truth of faith and resulting intelligence. Therefore, it is likened to a jasper stone shining like crystal. The wall of the city is described as jasper because the wall means the truth of faith protecting the church. 
So the idea is that truths or things in the mind, ideas are going to be a protection. And we see this in life. Think about somebody that you know who you think is cool, but they don't think that they're cool. Or they have some kind of negative picture of themselves. And you thought, oh, if you just saw the truth, if you just saw that people do like you and that you are cool, you would be safe from these negative thoughts and feelings that come in all the time. The truth can protect knowing the right things going into a situation can protect you. Also, it can be an internal sort of shield if you're getting negative messages, if you have some truths to hang on to about the value of everyone, about the triumph of good over evil. That can be very potent as far as defense. And Swedenborg is describing this new mind, what I don't the exact principles that make up that wall. There, you know, that's a discussion for another time. However, in the mindset, there's going to be these around it like a wall. So that's the first, and that's how the game works. There's a There's an element of the city, and this is actually a description of the mind. And we're just going through and getting the very basics of what those mean. So in that wall, if you noticed in our picture, there are gates in the wall. There are 12 of them, actually. And both the fact that they're there and their positioning in number have significance. So what is that significance? Swedenborg describes further. This is from Revelation Unveiled number 899 and Revelation Unveiled is Swedenborg's description of the meaning of the book of Revelation. So as you can see in these little clips, he's going through it piece by piece. And 12 gates. This symbolizes all the concepts of truth and goodness by which a person is introduced into the church. So gates are an introduction. And that might sound strange at first. What are you talking about? A truth introducing you into something. But think about it. If you're you're here, whoever you are, watching a show about spiritual kind of things on YouTube, how did you get here? <laughs> how did I get here? And it's part of some kind of journey that we're on. We, whether you're seeking something or you have a sort of body of um, a worldview or a body of knowledge or faith and you're supplementing it, whatever it is, there you're somewhere in your journey to try to learn the ultimate truth about life. And in all those journeys, there are certain ideas that act like gates to us. If you get involved in a particular tradition, it might be that there's a particular idea that hooks you in, maybe something about some kind of ethical idea. You hear something, uh, do unto others as they should do unto you, or some, in other, some other tradition that hooks you in. Maybe you hear the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, and you say, oh, I want more of that. It could be uh, somebody lives a certain way, and you ask them, wait, why, do you, why are you so cool? And they say, oh, well, I'm part of this group, and, and so you want to get in. There's something that pulls you in initially. So that those truths are like these gates that let you into the mindset. But then also, there's another thing he says about why are there so many, and why are they all around the city? Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. This symbolically means that concepts of truth and goodness are provided for people who possess more or less love or affection for goodness, and for people who possess more or less wisdom or affection for truth. So the number of the gates and that they're all around is about accommodation. And think about think about how different people are and how different they how differently they engage with ideas and their different levels of interest in things. And that this is a picture of the divine making it so everybody's got a way to get in there. Not everybody's gonna there's some people who might be really interested in Swedenborg, like we're talking about here, and sort of the depth of the ideas and the complexity. Other people that might not be what they're into at all. And they want something more about uh 
you know, some kind of simple ethics, or they want a whole different tradition, or they don't want any kind of fluff or spiritual stuff. They just want, what do I do today? How do I act towards people? Something like that, which I'd say a lot of those things are in Swedenborg, but they still might not like the flavoring. My point is this. You don't all go in through the same gate. You know, there's different things that appeal to different people, and God is not interested in people not making it into the city or the mindset or the church just because one gate wasn't right for them. This is about accommodation. Some people are want to delve into spiritual things all the time. Other people are content living and want to listen sometimes. So it's not like other. some people are better or worse than others. They just have different gates they can go in. And these 12 are a picture of it being open to everyone of all kinds of all kinds of faith traditions, of all kinds of belief structures. There's going to be something that gets you into this mindset, and that's a little hint or foretelling of the multi-denominational nature of this new church Swedenborg is talking about. All right, so let's move on from that, from those the number of gates to what they're made out of. If you've read this description in the book of Revelation, you may have noticed that it says each gate was made out of one pearl, like a single pearl, like there was some kind of massive pearl that they dug that gate out of, uh, and that's an odd piece of data, you know. You wouldn't think necessarily, oh, that would be the best material to make a gate out of. Why would you do that? Where are you going to find a pearl that big? How big was the clam that made that pearl? However, it's still described that way. And Swedenborg says this somewhat strange detail has a spiritual significance. Again, and this comes from Revelation Unveiled 9.1.6. Each gate was of one pearl because all the concepts of truth and goodness symbolized by the gates and by pearls relate to a single concept, one that is their containing value. And that con- single concept is a concept of the Lord. When Swedenborg says the Lord, he's talking about God, specifically a God we can relate to and interact with. So what he's saying here is that that concept can pull everything together. However, it's a little more than that because the God Swedenborg describes is love and wisdom, that everything good is God. It's a complex topic, but basically that when good things are done, that's God's power coming through. So there is love. It's not all just about forming an idea of, oh, there's a being out there in your mind. It's the essence of love. So that love, that idea, pulls everything together. It takes all these elements in your mind, all these factoids and truths, and organizes them and makes them into a unity. Because without that, they could be disjointed and not really lead to something. But this love that pulls it together is one thing. And that's why the gates are of one pearl. Are you with me so far? This is how the Swedenborg's language of correspondence works across the entire text of the Bible and in nature. All these, uh, in the world around us, everything is a symbol of something. So everything is a dual purpose thing. All right, let's take a look at the foundation. If we move downward a little bit, there's an odd description, and I'm not trying to be offensive calling it odd, it's just curious would maybe be a good word. It's an odd description, curious description of the the foundation, a bunch of foundations all made of precious stones. We, we picture them stacked up on each other here, but you can picture them in whatever way you want. But it seems strange. Are precious stones the best building material for a foundation? Do they crack? Do they let water in? Why those? Well, again, there's a spiritual significance to these different kinds of stones. And in summary, it's uh, from Secrets of Heaven 10252. 10252, that's a big number right there. This is a long work. Swedenborg has a lot to say about these kinds of symbolism. Truth, truths present within knowledge on the level of the senses act as a foundation. 
These truths are described in John in the book of Revelation by the precious stones forming the foundations of the wall of the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Truth present within the knowledge of the knowledge and the level of the senses. The senses, level of the senses, this is our, our physical senses, what we're using to watch this show, to hear things, to feel yourself sitting in your chair or on your couch or wherever you are. That That's that's the sensory level, the outermost, most immediate level that we're most immersed in in our time when we're alive on this planet. So he's saying that the truths you have there, the practical things that connect you to the higher principles of love, of God, of um, of the things that you feel like have deep meaning, those things that are immediate, that are concrete, that you can do, that's the foundation of the whole thing. Because once you have that foundation, everything's got to rest on that. If it didn't have that, you could just kind of, oh yeah, I have some philosophy I think about. But if it's not being practically applied on the level of the senses, the thing, and also just the practical knowledge you have about the world, how it works, enough to make your way through the world. If you couldn't do that, if you couldn't feed yourself, take care of things, do things, then it wouldn't matter too much what you thought about or this this spiritually type stuff. You need to have that foundation there too. That's what it is. And then finally, one of the most interesting descriptions of the city is the dimensions. You know, in the Bible it says the length, width, and height were all equal. The city is huge and it's all equal. And that's that's curious. As I said, if you were an architect or a city planner, and you went to the board of city committee and said, hello, I'd like to build a city, and it's going to be a square, you would probably get some pushback, because nobody, nobody's ever built a city that's a square. Why is it described as this giant square? Well, it's because, again, yep, it means something. So this is from Swedenborg's book, Revelation Unveiled. The city's length, breadth, and height are said to be equal in order to symbolize the fact that everything connected with that church springs from the goodness of love. For length symbolizes the goodness of love, and breadth the truth emanating from that love, and height symbolizes goodness and truth together in every degree. Goodness and truth together. If you go into Swedenborg's works, you'll find that that's one of the most important things in the whole thing, this getting things together in one place. He says, love and truth have to be a unity. So, you know, you have you can have too much truth, as he often uh, criticized the Christian church of his day for doing, or you, because you can know all these things about uh, philosophy, about religion, but if you're not loving person, if you're not using that knowledge for love, then what's the point? You know, it doesn't come through in loving action. You can be somebody who knows something about all kinds of good stuff, but they don't come through in love. So you don't get anything good out of it. Think about, you can think about it uh, like a doctor. You know, if you have a doctor who knows a lot, but doesn't listen or care, how helpful are they to you? That magic spot is where they both are equal. You have somebody who knows all kinds of things about the human body and about all kinds of maladies that go on and is also listening to you, cares about your condition, truly wants to help you. That's the magic of having both the same. And that's the picture of the city and that they're together. And when they're together, they rise. And that's why you get that height to be the same in all. So that's a picture of the wholeness and completeness that's been missing in the human race. We know things, but we don't love, or we love, but we don't know what to do, but there's been a missing of both together. So that's one thing. And then also, he says that 
In Revelation Unveiled 905, the city is laid out as a square. This symbolizes justice in the new church. A square or quadrilateral layout symbolizes justice because it has four sides, and the four sides face the four cardinal points of the compass. And to face the four cardinal points equally is to regard everything equitably. That is why there were three gates on each side giving entrance into the city. The city was laid out as a square in order that its length and breadth might be equal, the length symbolizing the goodness of the new church, the breadth its truth. And when goodness and truth are in balance, then there is justice. So again, the importance of this equality. And if there's not both, we're in trouble. He actually says God is both love and wisdom. And in, from God, it emanates as a, what he calls a single whole. And if we can receive those together as a single whole, we're in really good shape. And that's what the city of the mind is all about, being in this good mental, spiritual shape. And that's the idea of the new church, is that this kind of mindset is going to come into the human race at large. It sounds pretty cool, right? If we were around and everybody was like that, equally loving and wise, that seems like it would be a nice neighborhood, a nice world to live in. So how come we aren't there right now? I I personally don't feel like we're there. Why not? What needs to happen first? Okay, so we need to figure out how things go. What's the sequence? Uh, I, yeah, I would love to see this new era. You think back to all these quotes that we had in the beginning, near-death experiences, all that stuff. That would be cool if that stuff came. Why isn't it? These are Swedenborg's answers to it, or at least why it wasn't there back in his day. This is from Apocalypse Explained, 732. There are several reasons why this new church that is called the Holy Jerusalem will begin will first begin with a few, afterwards to be with more, and finally to reach a fullness. First, and this is going to get pretty uh, church-related, but remember, everything Swedenborg says about the church is applicable to any mind, and we can maybe go into that if necessary. I'll see what he says. First, its doctrine, which is the doctrine of love to the Lord and charity towards the neighbor, cannot be acknowledged and thus received except by those who are interiorly affected by truths. And those only can be interiorly affected by truths who have the ability to see them, and those who only see truths who have cultivated their intellectual faculty, and have not destroyed it in themselves by the loves of self and the world. And so there he's saying, love to the Lord and love of the neighbor, as we've described in previous episodes. This means a love of the human race and of the knowledge that you need to help them, right? That, that, that is the essence of love to the Lord and love to the neighbor. And he's saying that the things that destroy our reception of that is egotism, selfishness, pride. That blocks it up. A second reason is that the doctrine of that church cannot be acknowledged and thence received, but by those who have not confirmed themselves by doctrine and at the same time by life in faith alone. Confirmation by doctrine alone does not prevent reception, but confirmation by life also does prevent. For such do not know what love to the Lord is, nor what charity to the neighbor is, nor are they willing to know. So, when he talks about faith alone, you got to transport yourself back to Swedenborg's time. He was living in a theocracy in Europe when the Christian church pretty much controlled everything, and there was this standard doctrine of faith alone, and people took it then to mean it doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you do, you're safe if you're in this particular club. And Swedenborg was saying, like in the city, the holy city, you've got to have the lengths equal. If you just have this faith, but you don't have love, we see that. 
everybody knows uh, some kind of religious group that's causing a lot of harm because they have this faith, but they don't have any love with it. So he's saying that that is destructive. You can't have this new church. And it, I think it would extend outside religion. If you have knowledge of some kind, but you're not kind about it, or you're not using it, you can think of anybody who's smart but stuck up. It's not that fun to be around, right? So this is the idea that he's getting at there. And these are things that were blocking the, re- the receptivity to this new church mindset. But then there's another one, and it's a little more out there. So this is from that same number. A third reason is that the new church grows according to its increase in the world of spirits. For spirits from that world are with men, and they are from such as while they lived on earth were in the faith of their church. And none of these receive the doctrine, but those who have been in the spiritual affection of truth. Sorry, this is the old translation. This is why we we have updated the translations. This is this is a pretty old and it's pretty wordy, but hopefully you're sticking with the new translation. Oh no, not of this one, but of, of, of another book like it is coming out soon. These are only conjoined to heaven where that doctrine is, and they conjoin heaven to man. The number of these in the spiritual world now increases daily. Therefore, according to their increase, does that church that is called the New Jerusalem increase on earth. These also were the reasons why the Christian church, after the Lord had left the world, increased so slowly in Europe and did not attain its fullness until an age had elapsed. So, did you get that? He's saying that, essentially, he's saying it's all a continuum. You think there's a spiritual world and a physical world, and we're not separate. Our minds are not separate. The system is not separate. Love and truth come out of God to get down to us to where we can have the kind of mindset we're talking about to make the world a better place. It comes through the spiritual world. So there has to be what he calls a new heaven set up first. There have to be people that live this way in the afterlife. And if those people are doing it, then that can come into our minds. It can channel this stuff down in. So that has to be there, or else we can't just get a mindset out of nowhere. It's not an arbitrary thing. You look around in life, you look at the world, it's all systems, right? It's all complex systems that need all their elements together to work. And he's saying it's the same thing with this new mindset. You have to have the system complete from end to end. So that's meaning there needs to be something in the spiritual world. So that needed to happen. And he talks about it more in this next thing, but this is an interesting one. This is not a book that Swedenborg published. This is actually a letter that he wrote to his friend, from Swedenborg to his friend, Dr. Bayer. And Dr. Bayer was an interesting case. First, adopters and defenders of Swedenborg. Actually, Dr. Bayer was teaching Swedenborg at the university where Dr. Bayer worked, and he got put on trial for it, uh, and he was, I heard he was facing the death penalty, potentially, because again, theocracy, this is teaching against the church of the time, he was teaching in Swedish, which is the common language, which, so that's getting to the people, so they were upset about it, and he, he basically said, I'm only doing this because I think it's true. So this was a letter that Swedenborg wrote to his friend who, who stuck up for him, and he's responding to a letter that Dr. Bayer had written. So let's take a look at that. He's restating Dr. Bayer's question here, how soon a new church is to be expected? And he goes on, answer, the Lord is now establishing a new heaven from those who believe in him and acknowledge him to be the true God of heaven and earth, and who also look to him in their lives, which means the shunning of evil and the doing of good. So that's what it means to look to God. Don't do what's bad, do what's good. Right, That's the essence of looking to God. For it is from this heaven that the new Jerusalem is to descend. And remember, we talked about the new Jerusalem is the, that city, the city of the mind. Daily, and here's some numbers for you. Daily I see spirits and angels descending and ascending in numbers from 10 to 20,000. 
and being arranged in order. And so far as this heaven is formed, the new church will commence and grow. So in case you ever wanted to know how many spirits per day were being assembled in 1750-something to make the new heaven, 10 to 20,000. There's your, there's your data for the day. The universities of Christianity are now receiving instruction. And from them new priests will come, for the new heaven holds no sway with the old priests who regard themselves as learned in the justification by faith alone. So there he's grinding his axe against faith alone again. And that gets a little into, oh, is this new church or something that's coming within the Christian church? We'll get to that, I promise, at the end. But there's a little something to, to get you in the mood. So, to sum it up, if you look at, remember that graphic we had in the beginning, there needs to be... Uh, a descending, ooh, it's so hard to do this thing, They're like, because it's mirrored for me, anyway, a descending from heaven down to earth, that everything, including the mindset, has to come from heaven to earth, and it's got to do that in order, so th- once that's established there, that's going to help us get ourselves together here. Has it already happened by now? This was Swedenborg writing back then? I don't know. Do you think so? Could be. We're going to take a look now. I said, I said that we weren't going to really tell you about what the church is going to look like, the new mindset. Remember, we, we were serving up some disappointment because that wasn't going to happen. Well, I wasn't being, as I said in Independence Day, as that guy said to the president, uh, that's not entirely accurate. There is a little bit of prediction, but you got to tease it out, and that's exactly what we're going to do next. So when we when we said in the beginning that Swedenborg doesn't describe it, he really doesn't, but he does, or he at least says where you can find it. And so it's kind of a confusing thing. But I went and talked to uh, Dr. Jonathan Rose, who's a series editor of the New Century Edition translation of Swedenborg's works. He's been on the show before, and we had a conversation about this whole phenomenon and where you can find these descriptions. First, I started. Oh, oh! First, I uh, started by looking at the sort of where what Swedenborg says, and he does actually describe this new church, and he says that it's going to be. I actually I drew a picture of it. Do you guys want to see? This is a picture of what the new church is going to look like. So that's just a rough sketch that I did of what, what the new church looks like. But what does that mean? I don't know, man. Jonathan Rose explains. First, I asked him, what is the new church? So he uses the phrase, a new church, many, many times. And what he means is a whole new religious era. There'll be quite a new approach to religion uh, that's coming and that he's heralding this, that this will develop in our world. So it took me a long while to realize, wait a minute. He hardly ever describes what this new church is going to be like. You know, what, what is the new church? Actually, okay, this is great. Something new is coming. But what is it going to be like? And uh, he wrote a tremendous amount, three and a half million Latin words um, of published material and a lot of other manuscript material that he left behind that's come out in many, many volumes. And the last work that he does is called True Christianity. The 14th chapter of 14 in this book is titled, The Close of the Age, The Coming of the Lord, 
and the new heaven and the new church. You get to number paragraph number 789, and he says this phrase. I translated this work myself, and I was on tenterhooks when I got to this point because now he's going to say it. Listen to this phrase at the beginning of 789. He says, as for what this church is going to be like. Okay, finally, you know, <laughs> it's like it's the fourth quarter of an NFL game and we've got a minute and a half to go. And he is finally getting to the point what this new church is going to be like. And this is what he says. As for what this church is going to be like, the prophets gave predictions about it in many passages. I will pre present just a few here. So he says, he, he totally dodges the, you know, he, he won't even say, and then if you can look at the way that this is set here, you get all, it's just nothing but block quotes. Here's a quote from, from Zechariah, a quote from Joel, a quote from Jeremiah, a quote from Isaiah, you know, so on and so forth. And then he gets to some quotes. He says, uh, it's also amply described in the book of Revelation. He's got quotes from there. And the book ends. You know, that, that's, that's the end of the main text. And there's some other matter at the back of the book. So he never says. He just says, you can find out what it is in the prop. You don't need to listen to me. Uh, just read the Old Testament prophets and then what this is going to be like. So are you following the plot line so far? It's Swedenborg. Said, he talks about the new church a lot, but at the end there, and I love hearing Jonathan tell that story of translating it. Yeah, what are you going to say? You're not going to say. But he does say, you can check it out in the prophets. However, you may have two questions in your mind right now. One, what was that picture that I showed, or the, you know that little movie clip? Second of all, the prophets. What are that? That's the prophets of the Old Testament of the Bible. But you, even if you've read them, so how many questions are we up to now? Three. Uh, where does it say that? I've looked in there. That doesn't say anything about a new church. So, Jonathan further explains. Now the thing about that is, is that the prophets don't literally use the term a new church or a new religion. So what are the prophets saying that relates to this? The language he explains many times in which the prophets are written is what he calls correspondences, which is this idea that there's a symbolism. And, and I think a lot of people can see it's such a poetical language. And often you have pairs of expressions, gladness and joy, the mountains and the hills, the rivers and streams and so on. And these things all have a, a kind of meaning and they're paired together. And so the prophets are written in the language of correspondences. And by knowing a little bit about correspondences, we can see, we can start to glimpse what is being prophesied there. What is this beautiful picture we have of how things are going to be in the future? An idea you see a lot in the prophets is that all these different nations will be brought together. The way that I read these things is that it's talking about people of a number of different kind of religious traditions being drawn to this. It'll be, it won't be like one denomination. It'll be multi-denominational. Psalm 72 verse 11, all kings shall fall down before him, meaning God, all nations shall serve him. At the end of Zechariah chapter 8 in verses 22 and 23, it says, Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Every word of these passages 
has a type of meaning. And so when it speaks here of Jerusalem and it speaks of a Jewish man, it doesn't only mean the physical Jerusalem and it doesn't only mean a Jewish man. It means people of all different kinds. It's more something internal about how you're following your God. It's any kind of religious person and it's anything having to do with serving God. And that applies to all the words in these prophecies. So, again, we're doing the same thing we did with the city, that there is this language of correspondences, that the Bible, the biblical texts are written in this language, this symbolic language, and if you can learn to read it, that's how you can learn about the new church. So there, in our animation, we initially saw a bunch of different kinds of people getting pulled together, and if you still remember it, you'll know next they came and gathered around something, and what was it and why? There's an image in scripture as another kind of correspondential image that you see is the image of the mountain. And mountains appear a lot and have great significance in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You see a lot of mention of mountains. And when there's this prediction of this future time, of this new kind of religious era or this new kind of spirituality that'll come into the world, it's often framed in terms of mountains. That's about love. It's about loving God, about loving the neighbor. Uh, it's a symbolism for mountain. You can see a little hint of this in the, in the way that you feel. There's something exalted about mountains. They, they're, their loftiest kind of human state is represented by mountains. And the highest state that we can be in is love. It's a state of loving God and loving our neighbor. And so in the future, there will be a time that uh, it's about the mountains. In other words, the center of this religious era will have to do with love. So it's a bunch of different kinds of people, all kinds of different people being pulled together and pulled together around love. Love is the central organizing force. Doesn't sound so bad so far. In the animation next, there was this weird thing that happened where we went up and there was like fire and people were floating around and what is that? So we're going to have that answered. Jonathan, take us home. There's also a beautiful prediction in Zechariah chapter 2 where the Lord says about Jerusalem, quote-unquote. I will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. From the Swedenborg's idea of correspondences, you see that fire has to do with love, and glory has to do with truth. There'll be great love and great truth here. Another beautiful prophecy is that there will be this Spirit of God will be very present, and it won't just be present on a few people. There won't be a few initiated, select special people who know about God and then everybody else is is ignorant of God. Uh, everybody will know the Lord and everybody will experience the Spirit. Here's Joel chapter 2 verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And even on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I think that this means that there will be more widespread spiritual experiences. In other words, there'll be a kind of connection with heaven. That heaven is kind of distant for a lot of us uh, these days, but it will be closer at hand and it'll be something that affects everybody, not just a few, but male, female, young, old, no matter where you are in the hierarchy or the strata of society, everybody will have this sense of the presence of another world. They'll have spiritual experiences. They'll have a sense of the presence of God. So 
to recap, there's going to be a lot of different people together. It's going to be based around love. There's going to be this love and wisdom from God. There's going to be greater connection, greater spiritual experience. And that's what you can get out of knowing how to do this correspondence thing. You see what he was doing there, moving through these prophecies and picking out what is that saying about this future. And how do you do that yourself at home? Pick up Swedenborg, The Long Works, Arcana Celestia, or, or which is now translated Secrets of Heaven, Revelation Unveiled, uh, Apocalypse Explained. He goes in there, and he goes line by line, and from that you can extrapolate and learn what that, that That's if you got some time. Otherwise, watch this show. All right, so that's just a little taste of the kinds of things he's prophesying. And it struck me as we we're going through that Swedenborg sure has a lot to say about this, this new church thing. So, with that in mind, where does Swedenborg fit into the whole thing? To begin his very last published work, Swedenborg following. This is from True Christianity 1. The faith of the new heaven and the new church is stated here in both universal and specific forms to serve as the face of the work that follows. The doorway that allows entry into the temple and the summary that which in one way or another contains all the details to follow. I say the faith of the new heaven and the new church because heaven, where there are angels, and the church in which there are people act together like the inner and outer levels in a human being. People in the church who love what is good because they believe what is true and who believe what is true because they love what is good are angels of heaven with regard to the inner levels of their minds. So that means you and I, if we love good things and true things because they're good, not for reputation or how they make us look, but because it's just the right thing to do, we are inwardly angelic. After death, they come into heaven and enjoy happiness there according to the relationship between their love and their faith. It is important to know that the new heaven that the Lord is establishing today has this faith as its face, doorway, and summary. So here you have Swedenborg in in his beginning of his last work saying, the stuff that I'm writing now is a description of how this new church operates, or this this stuff in here is what this new church believes. It's how they live it in the heavens, or the heaven that's that's based on this. So that sounds pretty important. So is the is Swedenborg the new church? I mean, not the guy of Swedenborg, and not he didn't start any church organization, but is the material he wrote, is his material spreading, what we're trying to do on this show, is that the new church coming? I think it's a part of it, but it's more complicated than that, as is evidenced by, as you guessed, more stuff Swedenborg wrote. So this is something that he wrote in True Christianity. He's talking about Africans, people in Africa. And this is coming into a conversation where he was saying African celestial or heavenly mindset. And so he, he thought pretty highly of them, and he says this, because the Africans are of this character, a revelation has at this day been made to them, which is spreading in all directions from the quarter where it originated, but has not yet reached the seas. I have heard the angels rejoicing over this revelation because by its means communication is opened up with the human rational. So this is Swedenborg saying, this is spreading. This new, these new church ideas are spreading. That doesn't mean it's his books that are spreading. This is some other revelation that's happening somewhere in Africa and spreading out from there. And he describes other things similar to that. Take a look back at that screen. 
in his book, Spiritual Experiences, the same ones who were there, we're just jumping right into the middle where he's talking about a group of people, the same ones who were there afterward related that they have long had revelations from heaven, and that thence was their religion, and that it has been promised them that many things should be revealed to them, and finally, touching God. They knew, this group, knew many things about heaven and hell which Christians are ignorant of. It was perceived that those in in the earth with whom there was dense communication and influx, were about the region of Africa, partly also in Asia, rather near the Indian Sea, but not in the immediate neighborhood of the sea. So, if you got a beach house, maybe you weren't part of that group, but he's saying somewhere around there, there was this communication of some kind of, people were having vision, I don't know, is it somebody meditating in caves and sort of in that area, is it somebody getting, is a shaman getting influx, is it a person just having experiences like Swedenborg, I don't know, but he's saying it was spreading there. So it seems as though it can spread through Swedenborg's material, it can spread through other material. And another question is, is it a Christian thing? Or is it like, is this new church a new Christian thing? Because his last um, his last book was entitled True Christianity. Is that what it is? Well, here's another number from Last Judgment 74 that relates. However, the angels, this is from his conversation with angels, that same number we were looking at in the beginning of the show, the angels themselves have only slight hope for people of the Christian church, but more hope for a people distant from the spiritual inflow. They are the kind of people who can accept spiritual light and become heavenly spiritual individuals. The angels also said that deeper divine truths are being unveiled to these people at the present day and are being accepted with a spiritual faith, that is, in their lives and their hearts. And one thing that's worth noting is, so these are angels Swedenborg is talking to, which, you know, we can, we've had other shows about what Swedenborg says about angels and who they are and all that, but they don't know the future. It just they, They're hoping, they have a little bit of hope that Christianity is going to turn it around and be a part of this thing, participate in it, but they're saying they're, they have more hope for another group of people. So it's just interesting that they don't, they don't really know. So it seems like, yes, and, that you can get the ideas of the new church through Swedenborg's works. There's also other places you can get them, other ways they can come. It can be an evolution of the Christian church, it can be a brand new thing, it can be an evolution of other groups. So it seems like there's a lot of different ways, which you would think, isn't that like the 12 gates we discussed before? So uh, I wanted to have this conversation a little bit about Swedenborg and who he was, and I got into some very interesting specifics with Dr. Jim Lawrence, who's a Swedenborg scholar. And so, first of all, I want to play a little clip where he gives a really nice short description of what the new church is like based on Swedenborg. So he said the following about the new church. There will be a widespread uh, realization of the spiritual values that God foresaw from the very beginning and result in a manifestation of a heavenly realm that would be uh, wall to wall of high spiritual intelligence, highly humble, deeply loving, and that all would be centered from uh, a, a relationship with the divine, <clears throat> being centered in and empowered from divine life, a paradisical, beautiful picture of all creation. It, it was this restitution and this eschaton that was at, was at hand. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Uh, do you want to play What's Different? You know, in those old school magazines, they have two pictures side by side, and they say, what's different? This one, so what do you see? This, is it? Yep, that's it. I pulled out all these books. This is Swedenborg's series, Apocalypse Explained. 
Now, this is, we've quoted a few times from this, this is where he is going through the book of Revelation and describing this new church. And this volume right here, number two, almost got burned out of existence. And what I mean by that, Jim will explain now. The manuscripts lay in the Swedish Academy of Sciences with all of the papers that went from Swedenborg um, to, to that destination sort of uh, un, undealt with until the uh, British uh, Swedenborgians from the Theosophical Society, the very first organization that developed after Swedenborg's death, wanted to publish uh, the Apocalypsis Explicata because it was sitting there and a fair copy ready to go to the printer. And so the Swedish Academy of Sciences lent these books uh, to that group. Volume two here was in the hands of a, in that group of a retired physician named uh, Henry Peckett. And while he had the manuscript, there was a big fire that broke out in his Soho uh, neighborhood in London and his own house went scorching to the ground. He went to his house looking to save what he could in the house and looking for this manuscript but couldn't find it and he had to leave the house almost immediately because the flames were so great. After the fire was over, uh, there was nothing to, be, uh, nothing to be found until a neighbor came to him and said that a fireman had thrown a bunch of uh, books out into the street and he had picked them up uh, for, to give them to him later and there was Apocalypse Explained, Volume 2, nearly in mint condition. A few nights later, the Theosophical Society were having a meeting. Dr. Peckett walks into the room, throws the manuscript onto the table, bursts into tears. And when he composed himself, he said, there, the most valuable possession I have in my hands is saved from the fire. And I gladly submit to my entire loss in order to have this be remade. So I I had never heard that story before, and I really loved hearing it from him, how he told it, everything. And I'm really glad that this this little book stuck around, because obviously I value the Swedenborg's text pretty highly. So to have a whole one that would have been gone, that's a big deal. So I'm I'm really glad. Uh, I'm with that guy who says I'm. It's fine that my whole house burned down. Although it's easy for me to say because I'm in my house. Okay, so we're playing the game again. Can you tell what's different? Yeah, we have something else over here. This is a different series of books that's currently in this edition. This is called Apocalypse Revealed. It's now being titled Revelation Unveiled in the new translation that'll be out shortly. This is doing the same thing as this group. This is They're both uh, explaining the book of Revelation. However, you may have noticed that these are very different sizes, and actually, this one was never published. It was close, but it never got there. A few, a little while later, he published this one. So the first thing you're probably asking is why, and that's what I asked too. And so I asked Jim about the mystery of these two books, which was why Swedenborg did not publish these books that are called Apocalypse Explained in in six volumes. He began interpreting the book of revelation right after he did uh secrets of heaven and several other small works as he became convinced that he needed to jump to the end of the bible in order to bring forward the story that was at hand it's the only 
manuscript that we have from Swedenborg that's in his fair copy made up for the printer because everything else he actually published and the fair copies that went to the printer were destroyed after publication, but he never took this work to the printer. He mysteriously set it aside with such an immense amount of work done, preparing as he went along, fair copy for the printer, all the way through Revelation 19, verse 10, which is 95% uh, of the book of Revelation. And he stopped at that point. So why didn't he publish uh, The Apocalypse Explained? It's been something that's been discussed by scholars for a long time. There are various theories one that it was too big of a work to publish and maybe it was going to be too expensive. Uh, one of you is that perhaps he thought he had, be, he had gotten too wordy and had gone off on too many tangents uh, in the text. But I think uh, from my studies, I agree with Rudolf Toffel that he realized that his interpretation of the apocalypse uh, was not sufficiently centered around the emerging new church that the apocalypse was all about. That was the actual message of the apocalypse. When you look at these big six volumes, he has the phrase new church about 40 to 50 times throughout them. But if you look at the two volumes that he did publish on the apocalypse several years later, which is uh, being titled Revelation Unveiled in its new translation, he mentions the apocalypse or brings up the apocalypse uh, something like 150 times in those two volumes, thus about an 800% increase. And the way in which the new church becomes an operative concept in all of the verses of the book of Revelation, starting from the very beginning to the end, is a dramatic shift in, themat in, in the theme of the apocalypse. So in the Revelation unveiled, as opposed to Apocalypse Explained, New Church with a capital N begins to be seen as the referent or the subject under discussion on the in the spiritual sense from the beginning of, of the book of Revelation. In, in Revelation unveiled compared to Apocalypse Explained, the last judgment evolves from a, a general doctrine to an accomplished fact, something that has happened and now has its effects that are unfolding uh, in, in our world. You can see that he might have gotten to verse 1910 before the holy city New Jerusalem is under the Christian prophet John's gaze, which is the place in Revelation unveiled where the largest and most impressive commentary of what the new church is spiritually all unfolds in the descriptions and the measurements of the holy city and what they signify spiritually. One can see Swedenborg in 1759 or so getting ready for the printer, racing along in verse, in chapter 19, getting up towards the holy city, engaging the, the rider on the white horse and beginning to realize as he looks at, at the significance of this material that it re, it's speaking of a much more uh, specific idea of what the new church uh, 
is about and how the new church has been unfolding through his own work so that in time uh, that he needed to set aside his work and not take it to the press that it would be something that he had to rethink and possibly redo it took him a while to realize just how big of a concept the new church was so big that he sacrificed a massive work in order for the proper idea to shine forth from the pages of the ancient sacred text. And if Swedenborg thought it was that big of an idea, at least we could do an hour or more about it here in this show. And So anyway, thanks very much to Jim Lawrence for that. That was just really interesting stuff that uh, I, I hadn't heard before, and hopefully interesting to you guys too, because it's cool to know the process that brought us this information that we're all gathered here to talk about today. Okay, so we've been through, we talked about the spiritual future, but what does it mean? So, I mean, what is what is it? We try to do this every show. What does it mean practically? What does it mean in our lives and interactions? What, how is it more than just theory? Uh, first of all, I would think it, it can inspire hope. This idea that Swedenborg, along with many others, are predicting this really great future. There's something cool. It's not the kind of hope where, oh, we don't need to do anything, but it can help you stay motivated to keep keep your efforts going. You can feel like the things I'm doing to try to improve the world, because we're all trying in little ways to improve the world, it's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. We are going to get there, but, you know, it's going to take work, but it's not hopeless. That So to me, I pull that out of it. It gives us some sort of target to aim at, too. I mean, this specific description from Swedenborg. Okay, if we have a general, it, it's not that specific, obviously, but we have a general direction we know we want to head in, that can help us kind of uh, have our efforts happen with more precision, you know? So I see it there. I also like to play a little game called Where is the New Church Now? Uh, and I don't, I'm not very good at it, but it's where I try to look at the world and where do you see, where do you think you see a new church or a new way of thinking coming into being? I, one thing that occurs to me is is human rights. That that in the last couple centuries, it's come a long way with people having basic rights. I, I even think about like even in wars, you know, there's certain ways you can and can't treat prisoners, that kind of stuff. I'm not going to give very many many examples because probably a lot of things that certain people think, oh, this is a new great thing happening. Other people think, oh, this is the problem with the world. So you play it for yourself. Where is the new church popping up? And I will say that Swedenborg thought pretty highly of this new church thing. He actually wrote this uh, in Revelation Unveiled. Anyone who knows anything of the Lord's coming and of the new new heaven and the new church, thus of the Lord's kingdom, should pray that it may come. So he thought it was worth hoping, desiring, taking action on, trying to make it come. So you know a little bit about it now. Hopefully you're excited for it too. And I want to end this with a correspondences segment. This whole show has been heavy in correspondences, which is a Swedenborgian word to say symbolism. And in this new church or this new mindset, we've looked at that there are these truths that make it up, which are like these various kinds of precious stones. There are mountains or love that are in it, all the way up into the the sky and the higher things and the whole human race coming together. So we're going to play, just for a few seconds here, we're going to play some images to take you visually through that tour, and you can just look at it, relax, and sort of see in symbolic form the progression to the new church.
Symbolically, we walk through the new church, and hopefully, sometimes pictures could give you the feelings that, that words can't quite give, so hopefully you got some good feelings out of that. All right, let's see if you did. Now it's time for the questions, the comments, the group discussion segment. Get If you haven't gotten yours in, get them in now, and we'll get to it on the other side of this quick break. All right, so the show's been long. It's already been like an hour, so we're going to have to cut the question segment. Just kidding. We're not going to cut it. We're going to do it. Thank you guys for staying with us, going the distance with us, and now let's uh, let's reward you by putting your questions up on screen. So this is from Lee on Facebook. In, Mat- in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, Then he will also say to those being on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, because they didn't help the hungry, the thirsty, etc. This doesn't seem to be about humans, but about the devil. Will this happen in heaven or on earth? How does it figure into the future of religion? So, this is very apropos for this show, don't you know, with my flow, because we're talking about biblical symbolism relating to the future. And here he's talking, he, this is some kind of biblical prophecy, how does it fit? And it seems like he's saying, oh, well, Jesus is saying this, he's talking to the devil. Um, how, what does that have, that's not a, you know, what is what Jesus says to the devil have to do with me? So, like it or dislike it, this is Swedenborg's interpretation. He didn't say he didn't believe that there was a single the devil that is a being uncreated being or an angel that fell that is in opposition to God and that the devil is the source of evil and that God is the source of good. The devil is a name that he gave just like everything else in the Bible is symbolic. The devil is a symbol of evil in the human heart. Specifically the love the root of it is the love of domination or controlling others taking from others. So that's the devil. So if Jesus is talking to the devil, this is God talking to evil in the human heart and saying, I'm going to separate these out, right? And that actually Swedenborg says in this new heaven that we were talking about earlier that there had to to establish that there had to be a separation of people who are acting like they're good but secretly nefarious and people they were deceiving and who are actually good, honest, open people. So in any time there's a prophecy that seems to be not related to us, the whole book, uh, the whole Bible in symbolism is talking about us. It's not about, oh, Jesus is saying this to people who are evil. He's talking to the, the evil parts in us, that if we're going to get to this heaven mindset, to this new church, we have to put the evil stuff aside. And they might say, oh, I'm not evil, I'm not bad. Nobody's perfect, and it's just, there are certain things in all of us that if we remove those, we'd be healthier. And I find it can be really fun, even though it doesn't sound fun, to search that out, because it's kind of like figuring out, oh, I have a vitamin deficiency. Oh, it's this deficiency? Okay, now I know how to get healthy. And the more I realize, what are my spiritual deficiencies or negative somethings, then I can get at it. So that's my thought on that. Great question. Thank you very much. Let's take a look at our next one. This is from Blender on YouTube. What areas of Swedenborg's message do experts disagree on or have different interpretations of? Yeah, man, uh, I would say there's a lot. I wouldn't know much about experts since I am not one. Zing. Uh, but there, I would say even the new church, there are disagreements about 
where does it show up? How does it show up? You know, some people think it'll be organizational. Some people think it's broader, although there's general consensus on that. People talk about, uh, you know, can you change? How much can you change after death? Um, uh, people, there's a lot of issues that the nature of animals and how do they, how conscious are they? Um, there's a lot of things that, that people disagree on. There's some, um, there is because there's some material that Swedenborg is very clear and goes over ad nauseum. There's some stuff that he touches on, but deeper than that, I think there is disagreements on the fundamentals, like what what are what is good in truth and what is, you know, how, how much can you have a church in you if you don't believe in God or you do? How, so I think even on the basic levels, there's disagreement because you got to weigh it through your own rational mind and see what fits, and everybody's coming at it from their own life experiences. And Swedenborg can say things in one place and then describe it differently in another. So I would say, as many experts as there are, there's probably a number of different interpretations. So, And I would hope that the culture itself lets there be this room for for difference, because Swedenborg even talks about that what really matters is love. Love unites. And if everybody is looking... To, to come at the conversation from a loving perspective, if we have differences of opinion, that's all right. So anyway, thanks for that question. Let's take a look at the next one. This is from Lee on YouTube. It says in the Bible, in the beginning, most all chapters are by unknown authors. How and who do we trust as the authority of truth, including Jesus? And this, so how do you know the people really, the, the people writing the Bible really knew what was going on, or that it's really who we think it was, or they're telling the truth? This is what's cool about Swedenborg's interpretation of the Bible, that he has this correspondence system, and you could say, oh, well, that's just passing the football to Swedenborg, and you got to trust what he says. You can look at it for yourself. Is, are there these patterns? Once you look at it through these patterns, do the ideas make sense? We look at that, that heavenly city in the beginning, and you know, we obviously, we did a simplistic explanation of it, but if you look deeper in, is that really, if you match it all up, is that really a good description? Does that make sense? Does that help me be a better person? You, the, the authority is in the living in the living of it, do you come into something better? And I find that's why I'm here talking about Swedenborg stuff all day, because I'm taking the concepts, trying to apply them to life, looking for them in life, and I see, oh, this is legit. Like, I see this here, especially in what he says about nature, how the natural world operates, the ecosystems and that. You can see these organizations of things, or I think I see them. Could be that I'm just fooling myself. It could not be. But ultimately, I think the, the only real source, I mean, you can try to just say someone wrote it, so it's true, whether it's somebody in the Bible or Swedenborg or whatever tradition, but that, there's always going to be cracks in that if it's not matching up with life. You know, there's got to be both. There's got to be some level of positive approaching of a, of a revelation, or else you, you, can find, you can find doubt in anything. However, if you have a level of, a, of a, a affirmative approach, and then you look in life, and if it's being confirmed, and if it's, if it's leading to love, if it's leading to good things, I think that love and truth are always joined, is what Swedenborg is saying. So, if you're finding the good and the love in there, that's probably the best indication toward truth. That, that's my particular thought on it. So thanks very much for the question. Let's take a look at the next one. This is from Keith on YouTube. Is it normal to ascend to a heavenly mindset and then decline into a hellish one? Yes. Swedenborg talks about that a lot, particularly the intellectual side of our mind. That He says that anybody can be, you can be raised 
way up into the highest intellect, the most heavenly mindset, and then you can come right back down. But we all know also that life goes like this, cycles go like this, and Swedenborg describes the process of spiritual growth as being moved forward by what he would, what is now being translated spiritual struggles or low points, when we actually get emptied out and things seem like they're going really wrong or we fail or something. This is like, almost like a fast or something for the body, that this is how you move forward, so that you actually can't advance unless you're having these periods of falling from the heavenly mindset. That you, Since we're talking about the Bible a ton this episode, look at the thing. It's full of wars and violence and all kinds of misadventure. It's not a happy, easy story. Look at life. It's not a simple, happy thing. This is how the process, it's like exercising and you get tired and you get sore and it's hard to do. This is the spiritual growth process. So to get to, you know, if I'm going to expect, oh, I, I learned a few things about Swedenborg, get into a heavenly mindset, and I'm going to stay there, or I know what's right, I just got to live it. Everybody has these low times. And the more that we can realize that about ourselves and be compassionate towards ourselves about that, we can also be compassionate towards other people and realize, oh, they're in a low time right now, rather than uh, judging them for it. So, that, that's my thought. I think it's a great question. Okay, let's take a look at another. We got a lot here. We are not alone here on YouTube. How did Earth get so bad? I mean, people on Earth, what force are we dealing with that has been trying to keep us in a lower state of awareness all this time? Is it just me who thinks this? No, uh, it's me too, because what, why is life like this? If there's God and there's love and, and we're all here and we all know what we could do to make it better, why don't we? Uh, the short answer is the devil. And by the devil, remember before we had a question about what is the devil? Devil is evil in the heart. However, that gets into a more complex answer because Swedenborg says there's two primary categories of evil. There's so much I could go into. There's love of self and love of the world. That's how it's translated. What that means is love of self is love of power, love of yourself, your own reputation, and in that power over other people, love of the world is gratification of whatever kind. And if those rule, you naturally want to take other people's things and bring them to you, and that's the root of conflict. As for why that's so prevalent in people and why it's so persistent, Swedenborg writes that there's heaven and there's hell. And hell is everybody who's buying into those evil mindsets. And actually, in the spiritual world, hell is this giant force that is trying to influence the mind, just like heaven is this big force to try to influence the mind. And next week, we're going to be talking about hell and how it influences the mind. So you might want to check that episode out. Um, how people got so bad in brief, uh, it's cumulative. If you, you know, from one generation to the next, People chose negative things, so you pass that along, just like physically you pass along genes. And finally, you we get born with tendencies towards selfishness. And that is, in a nutshell, where it comes from. But next week, we're going to be talking about it more, and we should do a whole show on hell and what that is sometime. Swedenborg's model of the mind is very interesting, this sort of collective subconscious, very interesting stuff. We hope to get to that more. But it's a great question. I think it's not just you. I think a lot of people are wondering that, too. Okay, so let's get to another one. Average John. Hey, Average John on YouTube. I wonder why we put more faith in a philosopher's idea of heaven and scoff at our friends and neighbors that have had near-death experiences. Eyewitnesses tell us mu so much, but society will not listen. Yeah, I think that to, to believe people that have had these experiences, and we try to, like we did in the beginning of the show, um, 
report on these are modern near-death experiences that coincide. And even Swedenborg, who are focusing on him, and he was a philosopher, but this is his reported spiritual experiences. He had the same uh, same situation that other people had. When he came out with these written ex- accounts, it's not like everybody was like, wow, this is so great, we believe you. He got killed for it. I mean, not literally, but that people were killing his reputation. Everybody made fun of him. People didn't believe him. He wrote in the beginning of his first book, I know that many people are going to say, I'm I'm paraphrasing, I know that many people are going to say, I'm just making this up. It's not true. I'm doing it to try to get followers or advance my reputation. But from this, I am not deterred. For I have seen, I have heard, I have felt. So he's saying, hey, I, this really happened to me. Uh, and and that that's uh, something that sometimes he just has to assert because he got so much backlash. But one of the things that I like about Swedenborg is that he lines up a lot with what our friends and neighbors are saying. When Raymond Moody, who we had on the show a few weeks ago, he was the guy who invented the term near-death experience. And in his first book, Life After Life, he had a whole segment on Swedenborg because of the similarities between what everyone else is experiencing and what Swedenborg experiences. And, but yes, in general... Pay attention to regular people, because we are some people too, so I appreciate it. Let's take a look at our next one. This is from Mark. YouTube, the weird spiritual experiences Swedenborg writes about causes some people to question his credibility. Has this stunted the growth of the new church? Yeah, man, Swedenborg is, is uh, he, he can be a little bit pokey or a little bit strange, you know, if you're trying to introduce him to your friends. But wait, he wrote this? He wrote this? There's this whole complex, strange, bizarre package that is Swedenborg's experiences. And some people, they get in, they see that stuff, and oh, this can't make sense, this can't be real. I think so. I think it has in some ways. I think you know, stunted Swedenborg getting out there. As we were talking about before, you know, the new church is, you know, as he was indicating even in some of these experiences, something broader, and we I don't know how, I, I, you know, we had this question before about experts and agreeing. I don't know how much Swedenborg is going to have to do with the actual new church as it emerges. I don't know. I would really like to know, but I don't. But I certainly do think part of this weirdness, but that's, as we just had in this previous question, that's part of this larger weirdness of that people have around spiritual experiences. Not just Swedenborg is doubted for his strangeness. Anyone who's had an experience, generally people say, did you really do that? No, you didn't. That's not like that. That's not a... So I think that's that's an issue. And But I think the people are more open. The fact that we can have a show like this and awesome people like you guys are going to show up and listen and, and that people are going to respond positively shows people are starting to get ready to hear things like this. All right, uh, um, let's get to a few more and then we're going to have to wrap it up because, uh, you know, we've been going for like four hours, well, one hour and something. Uh, I would like to just do questions forever. This is a lot of fun. R. Colazzo on YouTube, does Swedenborg say anything about heaven being focused on just on humans and why we are relevant to the universe? So no, uh, well, yes and no. I mean, Swedenborg says heaven is from the human race. However, his definition of the human race um, expanded to include people that live elsewhere in the universe, meaning extraterrestrials, which we might be talking now about this weird Swedenborg experiences that our previous comment was about. That Swedenborg says that he had interactions with spirit. First of all, he's saying he had interactions with the spiritual world, which could be weird enough for some people in the beginning. But not only that, when he was there, he had interactions with spirits from other planets, but he called them all human. 
That's not to say that, you know, everyone's the same species biologically. We all look exactly the same, but he, he called them all human. So what human is can stretch through those things. So the human race might just be, you know, uh, conscious spiritual beings, the beings that can become spiritual and are conscious. So we're relevant in that we're, we are the ones, the ones who can think about God, receive it, and pass it on. But it's not just people on this globe, as Swedenborg thought. Let's get to another one. This is Drive-By Poet on YouTube. Why so many future predictions seems, why do so many future predictions seem so negative? Like about destroying most of the human race and such. Yeah, there's certain, there's a lot of positive ones like we were focusing on, but there does also seem to be a lot of negative ones. Um, and that, uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's the overall optimism, pessimism. And I, you know, there certainly has been enough negative in the past uh, to justify a, a negative view of the future, which is why I think it's kind of novel for Swedenborg to be asserting, or and others like it to be asserting, no, it's going to get good and it's going to stay good, because all of history has been this cycle of good and bad, and some people now think that with new technology we could be headed for something really bad, but, you know, there are other people saying it ain't like that. So that's my thought. We have two more and then we'll be wrapping it all the way up. So this is Blender again on YouTube. Do you think that Swedenborg would approve of his unpublished works being made public? I don't know. That's a good question, especially things of his that were like his Journal of Dreams is published, um, which I don't think he ever intended to have published. Uh, His spiritual experiences, which he didn't intend to have published. You know, my thought is he'd be cool with it if it's helping people get in touch with the truths or the concepts, because I don't think he was too worried about his reputation or his privacy. He cared about the cause, and you can see this in the way he wrote. He was giving his everything to get these ideas out. So I would think that if it helped his ideas get out, if it helped communicate those to human minds, he would be all right with that stuff being published. Uh, If not, hopefully he will forgive us all for doing it. All right, let's do this very last one. We are not alone here again on YouTube. When you pass away from being in a tragic accident, is that part of your memory before you pass into the other life? Is it deleted? How does that work? Swedenborg says that we have two kinds of memory, a physical memory and a spiritual memory. Physical memory is housed in the brain, the spiritual memory is housed in the spiritual brain. He says a spirit is organized like a body. Um, The spiritual memory is complete, as in nothing that ever happens to us is ever forgotten. However, that doesn't mean you'd get into the next life and constantly be reliving that accident. Things are made dormant or taken away when they're not useful. So you're not haunted by anything, but if you ever need to pull it up, you can. So I would imagine if somebody passes away tragically, you know, that would come up for them when it's useful and in a way that's useful for them to to make the connection. So you guys have been great. Those have been awesome questions. Thanks for sticking around for the long show. Really appreciate it. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you did, maybe you could consider making a donation to it. As you notice, we don't have our five to one thing up here because our grant is over. You guys donated enough that we we used up the grant, which is good news because that means... uh, we did it, right? But we still need any support you guys can give is great because it helps us continue to make this programming. So consider it. There's a link in the description of the, the video to that. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. Next week, as I said, we're going to take a look at the dark side of things because you got it's a protection type episode. You got to know a bit about the dark side to try to stay in the light as much as possible. So next week, Please join us same time as we look at how to deal with evil spirits. Thanks, everyone. Take it easy.